12th verse, Jeremiah chapter 8. Jumping right into the middle of a statement well, made by the Lord in regards to his people, we'll talk about more in just a moment. But verse 12 of Jeremiah chapter 8, he says, Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. Therefore they shall fall among those who fall. In the time of their punishment they shall be cast down, says the Lord. Let's bow our heads together and ask the Lord to bless our consideration tonight. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are our great physician. Father, you are fully capable, able, Lord, of healing us of all needs, spiritual, emotional, physical, whatever the situation might be, Father, we know that you are the answer. So, Father, we pray, Lord, that when you speak to us and when you are teaching us, helping us to open our eyes to recognize our circumstances, our situations, even our condition, Father, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to do so, to receive what you're doing for us in teaching us and even healing us, Lord. Help us to receive such things that you're trying to do for us. Uh, as being at your hand. And I thank you, Father, that you are willing to do this. Open up our hearts tonight. Give us humility before you. And I pray that you'd give us joy as we consider your word. Be honored by it, I pray. And bless us in everything that we do this evening, I ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you're familiar with this man, Jeremiah, you might understand that his ministry lasted over the course of decades. I was priest, given as a prophet to speak specifically and particularly to these people in Judah. Um, well, they're heirs, as we commonly consider when we're looking at Israel and Judah individually or together as God's people there in the Old Testament. We oftentimes consider their heirs, and it's because they were abundant, they were identified, and they were recognized, and these ones were given to point them out. And we're given to read those things again and apply them Consider them, contrast them with our life, hopefully, but also to compare where we need to compare, certainly. That being said, um, he was warning them, as these prophets so often did warn God's people, warning Jerusalem and other ones overall about their idolatry, of their false preaching, of their false doctrines that were being passed out there, and just overall general ungodliness and reproach that was brought on God and God's things. If you look in verse 16 of Jeremiah chapter 1, you'll get an idea of what he was saying there. He says, I will utter my judgments, speaking for the Lord, certainly. I will utter my judgments against them concerning all their wickedness, because they have forsaken me, disregarded, left, parted from me, burned incense to other gods, and worshipped the works of their own hands. Therefore, prepare yourself, he says to Jeremiah, and arise, and speak to them all that I command you. Do not be dismayed before their faces, lest I dismay you before them. I have a word that I want you to speak to them. I have a burden for you to carry to them. I have well, instruction, correction, chastisement, and even judgment that I have to be delivered to these ones, an understanding of this. So prepare yourself. Gird yourself up, Jeremiah. Get ready for this. Because there's going to be opposition. Uh, but he was well, fully capable of doing what the Lord called him to. And so he would do that. And so that's what we read in the book of Jeremiah. We read much of those warnings that he presents. We see, uh, we get that understanding that judgment did come. The captivity did take place. The Chaldeans led by Nebuchadnezzar came in and did capture and take them out just as he had foretold and warned them about. And we see the destruction take place and so on and so forth. All of that because... 
Well, I guess you could say it this way, and this is what I've been having in my mind and on my heart, is that Israel, Judah, these ones here in Jerusalem and the region, they had a disease. And the disease was certainly sin. You understand that sin is a disease. It permeates when we allow it to, and it had permeated these people. If you look at it as a disease, as a sickness, then you recognize that 7th century Israel was stage 4, man. I mean, they were, they were well immersed by this time, well immersed in the error that their forefathers had established as they moved into Canaan, and even in the times before that. Uh, terminal, you would say, I suppose. It was an extensive disease. And when you look at diseases, we have a number of sick people, absent. Maybe we have some sick people just now not feeling, well, dad's not feeling great. He could tell you what his symptoms are. But when you have sick people, when you have people who have condition, be it a long-term chronic condition or something that's acute and more present, they tend to have symptoms, right? Something that's an indicator, those puzzle pieces that you might look at and put together and say, okay, we got fever and we have chills and we have aches. We got a sore throat. Open your mouth. And you open them out and you see big Easter eggs with different white spots on the tonsils. You're like, hey, you probably have strep, right? You put it all together. You take those things and, and you start to identify and start to, well, diagnose. Diagnose what's going on there. Fevers and chills and aches and swellings and all of those things. And it gives you an understanding of what the condition underlying is. Jeremiah didn't need... He didn't need to address the symptoms and figure out what was going on. He knew what was going on, and it was the sin of those people. It was the ungodliness that they had allowed to permeate themselves, and it was far-reaching, far-spread, and again, it was late stage. It was something that was hit them and hit them hard. He was dealing with the Lord as the Lord was dealing with Judah. And so he had an understanding. When you know what the condition is, you can treat it regardless of the symptoms. You can certainly, we'll get to it in a minute, you can treat the symptoms if you want to. Oftentimes you'll hear people make a designation, difference between a medical doctor and a doctor of osteopathy. Medical doctor treats the condition, DO treats the symptoms, right? Uh, you can do one or the other. Treating the symptoms oftentimes doesn't take care of what's underlying. Treating the actual condition oftentimes takes care of the symptoms. But sometimes as you're treating that condition, as if it's a long-term thing, well, then you also address the things that are there. You address the rash. You address the aches. You address all of those things while you're treating this over here as well. Uh, how do we treat the, well, both the condition and the symptoms of sin? Why well, it's Jesus. We understand this. Jeremiah didn't know it by name, but he knew it. He, he knew the Lord Jehovah. He knew God, and he recognized that. But in 1 John chapter 1, John tells us this, but if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. There's healing in the blood of Jesus. There's cleansing in the blood of Jesus. We recognize that. The sacrifice that was made by Him on that cross addressed the need and addressed the issue and addressed the illness and sickness that is sin. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death, and that's as poor a prognosis as you can have, spiritual, eternal death. But the gift of God, the treatment of God, if you want to say it that way, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He is both the great physician and he is the medicine for sin. Renders that medicine, renders himself, the blood of Jesus offered by our physician, is the answer for all of those things. Now, while the sickness is being treated, as I mentioned a moment ago, oftentimes you can address the symptoms as well. 
And one of Judah's symptoms that we see, if you saw the title, title slide and you listened in on this opening passage, if you look back in Jeremiah chapter 8 and verse 12, you see that that symptom is called out there. It says, there were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed, even so far as they did not know how to blush. Now, I looked at a number of different translations, and nearly all of them translated it the same way. I got into the Hebrew, as I do, just to confirm and make sure that there's not error or some kind of not... Well, I, when I say error, I want to be careful about how I say that. Error is capable, but that maybe it's translated something different than it was back in the day when this was presented. In the Hebrew, the word speaks specifically. The underlying word means a wounding, but it means wounding most often in regards to pride. Or, or a wounding of our humility, a wounding of our um, lack of humility, perhaps. And so it does coincide, and it is presented in a number of different places in Scripture as being a wounding of one's pride. And so if you think about what blushing is, how we know it today, you know, I've, I've been standing up here for a while now, and perhaps you've seen me at some point when my face flushed. I know I've felt it. <laughs> There have been a number of different times. If I talk about it, it might just happen. I've tended to blush quite frequently, actually. Uh, it just comes easy to me. Blushing is something, it's a reddening of the face, we understand. And it's in response to stress or anxiety in the moment or shyness or embarrassment. And ironically enough, as I've been considering this lesson, I was thinking about it this afternoon. If you happened to look up here at any time and you're... Well, after service, when we were all preparing to go home, well, I bumped into little George, little George Swank, my little friend and something. I don't try to work out what's going on in these kids' mind, whatever the ages they might be, but he'd taken to walking laps around the building this morning, hands in his pockets, and he was just marching all the way, all the way around. I passed by him. I said, good morning, George. How are you doing? He goes, you know, that sort of thing. And he smiled, and then I saw him again 27 seconds later as he made his lap around. And I said, well, hey, this looks familiar. And he goes, you know, that sort of thing. By the third time, I decided just to start playing with him. You know, I was poking on him and that sort of thing. And Allie came over. And so we were just having a good time. I'm like, here he comes. And as soon as he knew we were talking about him, I hope you're not listening, George. As soon as he knew that we were talking about him, you see him do this sort of thing, and he was walking towards us, and his whole face just flushed out, and he blushed because he got shy and embarrassed. It wasn't necessarily a, he wasn't like he was feeling threatened by us or anything like that. He was just, he was blushing in the moment. And you know how it feels. Man, sometimes it can be entirely uncomfortable, entirely awkward to wear your emotion, your present emotion in the moment, on your face, literally. I'm going to call him out. My brother-in-law, Bobby, man, I knew when he was angry. I, would, I always knew when Bobby was angry because his, <laughs> he burned a fire right here in his neck, and it would just burn up red, so you know what I'm talking about. Uh, if I'm embarrassed, chances are you're going to see my face go red. It just is what it is, and that's what's happening here, except it's kind of the opposite. They didn't know how, it says. Now, figuratively, yes, but there's a real practical natural application in this that we'll consider in a moment. But just to give you an understanding of where else this sort of thought is presented, if you want to turn to First Chronicles chapter 19, I'm not going to read all of the accounts simply because I don't feel like blushing right now, but back in the day, in the times of King David, there was a king, the king of the Ammonites, whose father passed away, and David sent a, a contingent of ambassadors to go and speak to him. 
uh, express his condolences, I guess you might say. And when he was there, his advisors told him, David's just trying to bump you out, man. He's moving in. This is a threatening gesture. So the guy decided he was going to flex, and he ended up taking David's men, cutting off their beards, and cutting off their robes to a measure that it was immodest, and it presented themselves immodestly. Uh, yeah, and so... Well, we'll pick up there in verse 5 of First Chronicles 19 where it says, Then some went and told David about the men. And he sent to meet them because the men were greatly ashamed. And there's our word. They were blushing. I think you can understand that, right? And the king said, Wait at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. There was a, a, a blushing, you might say, because there was shame and there was embarrassment. Under the law, I mean, well, if you look in Leviticus 19 verse 27, under the law, it spoke to of the beard. So there was already going to be a measure of sensitivity around there. It said, you shall not shave around the sides of your head, nor shall you disfigure or mar, in the King James Version it says. You shall not disfigure the edges of your beard. But there was also evidently a cultural standard at that time. Hacking off this that only men wear, that sort of thing. It was an insult. It was an insult to them. Cutting off their beard. Uh, and... Well, you can understand being made immodest. You know, I don't want to take this to a crass measure, but perhaps you've had those dreams where you had less clothing on than you intended and you, and you can't go anywhere to hide and it's rather embarrassing in the dream and you wake up kind of panicked and that sort of thing. I don't want to take that any farther, but you understand what modesty is and why we would be embarrassed and shame-faced when something like that takes place. So certainly, you understand... There was shame that's involved. The Jews that Jeremiah was speaking to had left off being embarrassed, had left off being ashamed. They no longer knew how to blush, it says. I think it's a very, well, very clear illustration, a very clear picture here that they didn't know how to blush. When they, were they ashamed? He asked a rhetorical question. Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? Well, plainly, they had not back in verse 12. Now listen, you have to understand, you have to understand that God has realistic expectations of his people. He, when he asks, were they ashamed when they committed abomination? It was obviously there was an expectation that they should have been. There was an expectation that they would have understood that there was abomination being, being committed on their part. He's no dummy. The Lord is fully aware of everything, and furthermore, He's very fair and He's righteous in His judgments as well. We understand this. He knows what people know. He knows what they're capable of knowing. He knows what they should know. And He knows if they know those things or not. He knows if they haven't been given opportunity. It actually kind of drives me just a little bit nuts when I hear God's people who are, are well-versed in the Word of God. And they say, you know, what are we going to do if we don't go out to the forest outreaches of those islands how in the world are those people ever going to hear the word of god if if i don't do it if we don't do it they'll be lost and i'm like how dare you accuse the lord of not being able to reach his people in whatever manner that he wants to let's not limit the lord from his capability now if he tells you get on that plane and you fly out there and you parachute into some remote island don't you dare tell the lord lord no because he wants to give you an opportunity to take part in such things but I'm not going to limit the Lord to my capability. I think it's wrong to do so. That being said, he knows what people know. And he knows what they've been given opportunity to know. And he holds them accountable for those things. But those ones that haven't heard, he recognizes. 
Uh, in Jonah 4, in the last verse of Jonah, you might recall that Jonah, that man was given direction, uh, direction to go speak to those people in Nineveh. He had issues with it, tried to run away from the Lord to begin with. I'm not going to tell the story. He had complaints with God's mercy towards Nineveh. Jonah wasn't interested, at least not at the beginning, in their mercy. And God explained to him, should I not pity Nineveh? I think that's one of the kindest passages in Scripture. Should I not pity Nineveh? Just the thought that these ones who were his enemies, who were counter to him, the enemies of his own people, and yet he still, he pitied them. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left and much livestock? Now listen, I'll leave the cattle out of it, the sheep, and just talk about those people. He understands that those ones are not able to discern between their right hand and their left. Now, different people will make the contention that he's talking about children there. Children that are young enough that don't even know that L is left, so this must be right. You know, they don't even have that understanding. You know, maybe it is that they were physically natural children here. And he's protecting the children. Or maybe it was just that spiritually speaking, they weren't even babies. Whatever the case might be, he recognized what their position was. He recognized what their understanding was, and he showed pity upon them. God, don't you go accusing the Lord of being unkind, of being unjust, of just being ready to thunderstrike someone down simply because he feels that whim. He knows the situation, and he knows what we're responsible for knowing and understanding, and he doesn't expect too much. So when he said about these ones, these ones who... Well, they don't even know how to blush. He recognizes that they should. They should know how to blush. And he recognizes that as as a symptom of an underlying condition. And his judgment was coming as a result, the second half of our verse there. It says, Therefore they shall fall among those who fall. In the time of their punishment they shall be cast down, says the Lord. If you look down at verse 13, he says, I will surely consume them, says the Lord. No grapes shall be on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree, and the leaf shall fade. And the things I have given them shall pass away from them. And further down still in verse 17, it says, For behold, I will send serpents among you, vipers which cannot be charmed, and they will bite you. Uh, You know, listen, I believe that this was figurative, certainly, when it says that serpents would come upon them we can see a lot of different places where ones came in if you just look at the captivity that took place and the destruction that took place in jerusalem they came into the very streets of that city crushed people and children with very little discrimination nebuchadnezzar came in and i mean it was atrocious the things that he did among those people of jerusalem and jeremiah had a front row seat to that he recognized that But this also harkens back to an old judgment, doesn't it? Back in Numbers 21. Should have, well, set off some red flags for the people of Israel. Remembering their forefathers back in the wilderness. If you look back in Numbers 21, those ones who were crying out to Moses as it was their oftentimes habit to do when they were unhappy, really chapped at Moses for daring to bring them out of Egypt and delivering them as the Lord had led them. What did they do? Numbers chapter 21 and verse 5. The people spoke against God and against Moses. 
Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. And our soul loathes this worthless bread that you've provided for us day in and day out of abundance, even giving us twice as much on the final day so that we can gather that much so that we don't even have to do that sort of work on the Sabbath day. Uh, I'm not going to sit and just throw stones at them. But it didn't sit well with God, and rightly so. It didn't sit well with him. It says in verse 6, So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. So unnecessary, right? It was so avoidable on the parts of the people of Israel. It was so preventable, I guess you could say. They didn't have to allow these serpents. They Essentially, and this is where my mind was going, they invited these things, invited these serpents of judgment, whatever, the, whatever, however the Lord wants to deliver his judgment. You're inviting God's judgment when you cry out against him and, and push back against the things that he wants from you or hold tight to those things that he doesn't want for you. Essentially, they invited this. It was, it was so entirely preventable, but they cried out. And so the Lord put down this judgment, put down this correction. Uh, they should have just believed. Should have just understood, the Lord has a plan here. And while I might be a little parched in the moment, the Lord knows what's going on in my throat. The Lord knows that my children need fed. The Lord knows that I need fed. He said he was going to take us from here to there. Whatever that might be, however uncomfortable that might be, I need to trust him for that. But they didn't, and they cried out, and here came these serpents. They invited those things, and they suffered great loss as a result. A number of people were bitten, and they died. And before we consider, before we consider more of that situation, let's stop and consider how we might relate to these ones. This people of Judah who were sick, who were ill, or sin was permeating these ones. Do we know how to blush? Let me say it that way, just getting right down to it. Do we know how to blush as we assess ourselves and look for, well, symptoms that we might have that relate to these ones? Have we forgotten? Have we, do we not know how to blush anymore? And I told you a moment ago, naturally speaking, I'm very good at it. I know, I know how to blush very well. Um, again, I mentioned George. Do we know how to blush? I remember when I was, well, mom had a lot of coworkers when I was a kid. I'd have crushes on those pretty ladies that, she, that they worked with whenever, on the rare times we'd go in there, they'd say, oh, your little boy's so cute, poof, blush, because you're shy, you're embarrassed, and all those things. I also got in trouble when I was in school, and the teacher would grab me by my ear, they could do that back in the day, take me to the principal's office or something like that. What'd you do? Threw a light bulb out the window. Blush, poof, man, I mean, hard, I mean, solid, you could feel it. It was uncomfortable because... I was embarrassed, and I knew that I was in trouble. You might say that I'd cons- not considered. I did consider it, and then I went ahead and committed an abomination. <laughs> yeah! Light bulb out the window, or climbing up on the stalls in the bathroom, or whatever the case might have been. I got caught on a number of different things, and man, poof, instantly, right over the face. I, I understand that. There was shame that was involved in those things. And so let me just speak practically. That's a natural thing. There are things that God has, well, not God. There are things that God's people have invited into their lives. That should make us blush. Certainly. That should make us blush. 
Now listen, I told you God understands things. And God understands the source of those things. God understands the easy access to certain things. I mean, I can point to the easy things to look at, but it's any number of things that we might invite into our homes, into our lives, into our minds, into our families, into our day-to-day, whatever the situation might be. We can watch anything we want to just about. We can talk to just about anyone that we want to just about anywhere now. We can buy just about anything that we choose And when I say anything, I mean anything. And we can do it from the comfort of our very own sofas. Uh, Song of Solomon 2, verse 2, I'm sorry, verse 15 of Song of Solomon 2 speaks of those little foxes that spoil the vines. For our vines have tender grapes. There are a number of different correlations that are presented here. But you think about little foxes that spoil the vines, little furry, cuddly things that come in. And when you're trying to grow something and nurture something, something that's good, something that's productive, something that illustrates our own lives, naturally, or spiritually speaking, something cuddly and something seemingly innocuous comes in, bites on that and hinders it, keeps it from being what it's intended to be. We know that the enemy prowls around like a lion, seeking whom he may devour, but sometimes he takes on or allows his, well, those ones who are allegiant to him to take on the form of little foxes, something cuddly. Other times it's not so innocuous, but oftentimes it seems, well, rather simple, rather even cute or rather unassuming. Um, But the fact of the matter is, is those things are dangerous. We can be taken unaware. If you look at Leviticus chapter 5, we don't take our doctrine from the Old Testament. We don't establish our doctrine on the Old Testament, but we can see similarities and oftentimes see correlations between our New Testament doctrine and see that. Under the law, those things that were taken or touched upon, brushed upon, impacted, contacted, even unaware... Still defiled. If a person touches any unclean thing, it says in Leviticus 5, verse 2, whether it is the carcass of an unclean beast or the carcass of unclean livestock or the carcass of unclean creeping things, and he is unaware of it, he also shall be unclean and guilty. Or if he touches human uncleanness, whatever uncleanness with which a man may be defiled, and he is unaware of it, when he realizes it, then he shall be guilty. Again, understand the Lord knows what we are aware of, what we have realized, what we have dismissed, what we have known and perhaps put away, what we haven't taken in for ourselves. He knows all of those things, and provision was made for these things that were defiling and making unclean. God recognizes. God provides for cleansing. He provides for healing. He does all of those things. And when we realize our error... And we need to go to the Lord and say, Lord, I've been defiled in something. Man, saints, we should blush hard before the Lord. We should, poof, it should be quite evident, quite humbling, quite even humiliating at times. When we realize our error and we come to him, we should be able to blush before him and demonstrate our shame, humility. Certainly for him to put that away when he cleanses. Certainly for him to deal with that and recognize that, correct us, build us back up just as he wants to. But there should be a time of blushing. But oftentimes that's not the case. Sometimes God's people invite the snakes. Sometimes they don't blush at all. Sometimes we find ourselves like Israel. Uh, They don't know how to blush. 
whatever reason that might be, perhaps because we've been so far from God's word or so enmeshed in something that maybe perhaps once would have made us blush, but now the calluses have built up and the lot, that sting is no longer there. And perhaps we're just, just completely, almost blissfully unaware because we have the encouragement from other ones under the guise and the banner of Christianity and faith that say, Dad, it's good now. It's, it's <laughs> whatever the case may be. No, we're good, you know. Lots of people, whatever the case might be. And it becomes normalized and it becomes, well, quote-unquote civilized even, some of these things that once would have made us blush. That's no place where we want to be, child of God. Romans 1, verse 32. Uh, well, Romans 1 speaks of a lot of things that are unpleasant by all means to read and to consider. Those things that are, well, descriptive and characteristic of ones who don't even know the Lord. And it goes on to speak of those ones that we can imitate. We can imitate those ones who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. There's danger in looking upon things that are defiling and should spiritually cause us to flush in the face at the consideration of, well, and to approve of those things and approve of those who practice them. It's not a place where we want to be. It's dangerous and it's defiling and it's reproachful upon the things of God and it's damaging to ourselves and those ones that we can impact. So, maybe we should address that symptom. Certainly we should treat the condition that's underlying, certainly. But begin by treating the, the symptom, understanding. You know what? As I step back here and I just consider where I'm at, what I'm doing, how I've been, how I am, what is normal for me? What is day to day? This would have bothered me one time at, at one time. And that takes a lot of sincerity and it takes a lot of well, going to the Lord about it and just considering things. I actually made this comment to my kids, the, to my kids the other day. I'm a little bit embarrassed. I want to frame this right. And I told them, I, I told, I need to stop and think for a second before I share all of this. I essentially, I made the point that I was a lot funnier back in the day. <laughs> Let me just say it that way. And you know what? Brother Doug told me that. He says, Greggy, you know, if you become the preacher that you're intended to be, and he says, and I believe this with all my heart, if you become the pastor that you're intended to be, people aren't going to think you're as entertaining. People really enjoy being around you, and you're funny, and people do find you entertaining right now, and, well, that's just not going to be the case. I'm like, well, thanks, brother. I appreciate that a great deal. You know what? He was right. He was right. And it's not just because people are, it's not because, simply because people look at you differently. But you know what? If you're going to be a child of God, whether you're standing up here or sitting anywhere else, if you're going to be a child of God and be who you're intended to be, well, then you have to put away some of those things that I thought was funny when I was younger and not entirely too long ago. And I told my kids, I used to be a lot more entertaining because I was much edgier with my humor. And I would say certain things that now... Well, it would make me blush. Let me say it that way. It would make me blush to say some of the things and to do some of the things and to laugh at some of the things and to tell the jokes that I might have. I'm not going to say that I was defiling, you know, when I was living in Denver, defiling it. But there have been times. There have been times where, well, I was willing to push the edge. God's people will get edgy sometimes. I think edgy is dangerous. You know, there's nothing wrong with being boring spiritually. 
There's nothing wrong with being boring. There's nothing wrong with stepping away from the edge of what might be defiling. There might be a, a dead dog over there that I might touch unintentionally just because I'm creeping over in that area. There's nothing wrong with being boring, even if people don't think you're entertaining, even if people will go so far as to say you're hateful, even if people will go so far as to say that you're unloving, and this or that. I've said it a number of times, there's going to come a time, if it's not already here, that merely speaking the word of God as I'm doing right now is going to be considered hate speech. And maybe even be against the law at some point. I trust that the Lord doesn't allow it to come to that point. At least not while I'm standing here, but we'll see what he does. Saints, there's no reason, there's no reason to not step back and say, should I be blushing at some of these things that are involved in my life? Is there a treatment for that? Is there a treatment for that symptom? Is there a treatment for the things that are underlying there? Well, absolutely there is. Back in our text passage in Jeremiah 8, verse 22, he asks that question, Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is there no recovery for the health of the daughter of my people? And of course, as I mentioned a moment ago, what is the answer? What is the treatment? Well, of course it's the Lord Jesus. Of course it is. He is that answer. He gives salvation. He gives cleansing. Cleansing from, from sin that has cost us eternal death and ongoing cleansing as we return to Him. And He's pictured back in that passage where we were talking about those fiery serpents that came in. He's pictured there in Numbers 21 verse 8 because He was still the answer back then. He was the answer then just as surely as He is now. But since He wasn't here bodily to put Himself on that cross and bear up our sins, He gave a picture of that. In November's, no, November's, in November's 21... No, Numbers 21 and verse 8. Back in that wilderness where the people were crying out to the Lord, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it shall live. I, I think that's beautiful. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, they needed to step out of their tent be a certain measure of exposure, wouldn't there? There'd be a certain measure of taking ownership, wouldn't there? There would have to be a, I need to leave my house, whatever the situation, whatever their living conditions were, I need to step out and say, I've been bitten. And you find that bronze serpent. And simply look at it. And cleansing came. So it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent... He lived. It always comes back to taking ownership of those things. I'm not going to say that everyone that was bitten was a sinner or had been sinning, but it would stand to reason if that was the case, right? The Lord knows who those fiery serpents were intended to bite and that sort of thing. Always comes back to taking ownership. And those ones who were bitten needed to step out and all they had to do was acknowledge, I've been bitten and I am sick and I can no longer blush. (laughs) That's not really the situation, but... Where is that pole? Where is that serpent? I invited the serpents is what we could say. I've invited serpents into my home, into my life, into my mind, into my situation. Perhaps I don't even feel them biting me anymore. Perhaps I don't have that capability of blushing when at one time, man, this would have really caused me to step back and take take a breath and step someplace else. 
Saints, if this is you and if this applies to you this evening, let me encourage you, step out of your tent, acknowledge, acknowledge that perhaps I have invited something and perhaps I'm not feeling as blushy as I should. And just look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. It might be embarrassing. It might be shaming to acknowledge that. It might feel shameful. But it's good to know when to blush and to do so. People might mock you if you something makes you blush. You know, I, well, in the old job, I started when I was very, very young. And I got to work with a bunch of salty old guys. And back in the 90s, there weren't, well, there weren't all of the issues and harassment and those sort of concerns. And so there were some things around the station. I'll be honest, at 20 years old, they made me blush. And once they saw that I was blushing over such things and was uncomfortable by such things, they made it a point every time they could to show this or to do this or to do that. I'm not ashamed of that job of God. I'm not ashamed of blushing at the things that, well, God would want us to turn from course i don't find those things anymore i don't encounter those things i don't i know where to avoid those things whatever the situation might be in your life perhaps you need to blush over bring it to the lord and allow him to teach you how to do so you won't regret it you won't regret it because he is the great physician and he wants to heal you wants to cleanse you wants to fix you the underlying condition not just the symptoms He wants to fix us, cleanse us, and make us whole and well always. Learn to blush once again, child of God. And I'll leave it there.